right, well, because we are not having a, um, a uh, Torah study today, uh, I thought a nice uh, compromise to that would be to talk about this week's Torah portion uh, in our service, because ironically, this is, you know, sometimes you come to a Torah portion and it's just like, boy, what am I going to, what are we going to pull out of this for an hour this afternoon? But this is a Torah portion that you could go for weeks on. Uh, okay, so we're going to talk about it a little bit this morning. First of all, I do want to say something about the Haftorah portion. Uh, I, I can't, can't let that go. This passage from Judges about Shimshon, about Samson and his mother. This is a great, you need to go back and read it again and you know, take some time in it because this is one of those great passages in the Tanakh where God manifests himself in the form of a human being. This is very, it's very important. This angel of the Lord uh, is uh, a, a manifestation of God. That is why they say, oh no, we're going to die for we have seen God. It was not in a vision. It was not in a dream. They had seen God. We might say, but it says the angel of the Lord. Well, in John chapter 1 and verse 1, Yeshua is called the word of God. And he is called God. And so here you have a very similar type of description of the presence of God. It's huge. And that's why, what do we read? What is, it? What is your name? It is too wonderful. And then you look in Isaiah chapter 9. What is the name of that child who was born? Wonderful. See, I, when we are familiar with the scriptures, we see that there is great continuity between the Tanakh and the New Covenant. And the incarnation of God is not something that was totally unheard of prior to the incarnation of Yeshua. What you have in Yeshua is the greatest uh, manifestation of the presence of God of all from the womb and being birthed and living a, a, a complete human life. The other experiences are what we would call ephemeral experiences. Just the appearance, the appear, just God manifested himself. In other words, the angel of the Lord didn't have a mother who birthed him and lived for a number of years in this world. God simply manifested, just appeared, but as a complete human being. That is the testimony of the narrative, that God manifested himself. And that is um, absolutely dynamic. Now, why is that Haftorah portion, why is that passage of Scripture picked as the Haftorah portion? Because it has to do with certain parts of the Torah portion. This week's Torah portion <clears throat> is the second installment of Torah from the book of Numbers. <clears throat> the book of Numbers is really a great <clears throat> passage uh, about how to accomplish the plan of God, how to accomplish, how to, how to walk with God uh, 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 fulfilling his calling in our lives. Many years ago, I gave a, um, uh, a sermon series. I did a sermon series on this, and I called it Finishing Well. Finishing Well. Because the goal was getting to the promised land. 
The beginning of the book of Numbers is about organization. It's about organization. Uh, you read, for example, how the tribes are situated. They're at Kadesh Barnea. They haven't left. <laughs> they've, now, they've been, uh, it's been two years since they came out of Egypt. But they have not ent- embarked on the main, the bulk of time of the wilderness wanderings yet. They're preparing to go. They don't actually leave until chapter 10 of Numbers. Okay? When you read it carefully. So here they are in the area of Sinai, Kadesh Barnea, uh, and they're preparing to leave. So in the first, last week we learned in our Torah portion that uh, uh, you know, there is uh, organization, that the people are situated in particular places, the tabernacle is in the center, we see uh, the role of the Levites, and, uh, and there's a particular person holding the flag, uh, and we learn that everyone is significant and that, there, uh, that order is necessary, okay? That's what we learned there. Uh, and that's very true, by the way, for us. You know, I like to use the metaphor of a, a trellis and a vine, that a vine is, is beautiful, a vine is something that we, uh, you look at and it's... Uh, you know, that, that you might grow on the side of your house and, and things of that nature. And, and it's, uh, you know, the goal is that the vine grows, right? But the vine has to hang on to something. It has to hang on to something. Of course, you know, when I think about vines, as I said in our Torah study last week, in my head, I think about the outfield at Wrigley Field, okay? Beautiful vines. It's like everybody knows about the, you know, the, uh, what's growing out there uh, along that wall. But it needs the wall for those vines to grow, right? Okay. So you have to have the wall. You have to have a trellis, right? So a congregation needs organization or else it's chaos or else there's no communication, or else you go around in circles and get nothing done and waste your resources and, and, all, uh, and not really being good stewards of people, of time, of finances, or anything else. So you have to have organization, but the goal is not organization. The goal is people, right? The goal of organization is serving the people, right? Okay? So that's why you have to have a trellis so that you can focus on growing the vine healthy. See, Okay? So you have in the beginning of the book of Numbers, organization. Now, beginning in chapter 4 and then continuing through this week's Torah portion into chapter 7, it's all about a variety of sins and uh, laws having to do with the role of the priests. In chapter 4, you have a census of the Levites. Okay, And then in chapter 5, you have uh, uh, rules concerning the confession of sins. And then at the end of chapter 5, you have one of the most interesting laws in all of Torah. It's called Sota. And it refers to a man who accuses his wife of adultery, and he brings her before the priest, and she has to drink a potion of dirt and water. Okay, uh, and uh, God knows the heart, and if she is not adulterous, she'll be fine, and she'll conceive and have children. If she is, basically what's going to happen is her thighs will waste away, and her stomach will grow, and she'll eventually die. Okay, uh, so 
uh, what I love uh, most about, by, by the way, that portion is it teaches us that the Bible is not a flat earth and each passage, is, each passage has to be interpreted in its own context because if you try this at home, I will be visiting you in prison, okay? I don't mean even that to be humorous because it just goes to show you that when we say we're Torah observant, you have to look at each passage and understand what it's there for, what it means, what it meant then, and how you interpret it and apply it today, okay? Uh, and that's very important. Then you have the, the Nazarite vow uh, law at the beginning of chapter 6, and then the Aaronic benediction, okay? Then in chapter 7, you have uh, offerings of the priests. What is all of this? How do you put all this together? And what does it have to do with the first part? Well, may I suggest that it has to do with consecration. It has to do with if one is going to be successful on the journey, you have to have that organization, but you also have to have holiness. It's not just about organization and having an agenda and goals, you know, and all of that, but there must be holiness of the people of all of us, we must be consecrated to God. And these passages describe, on one hand, the role of the spiritual leaders in bringing about consecration. So it'd be great for like a leadership retreat or something. But then on the other hand, it, uh, it's about the people and how we are to indeed um, be holy. How we are indeed to be holy uh, holy people. All right. Now, uh, we know when you read the book of Numbers, the whole book of Numbers, you know that in the book of Numbers, we have the most, how we say, the sin that had the greatest consequences. Uh, well, I shouldn't say the great, one of the greatest consequences, not the greatest consequence, one of the greatest consequences on the history of of, uh, of the Jewish people. Usually when I ask that question, and I don't say it's from the book of Numbers, and I say, um, what is uh, the most uh, 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 gravest sin that in the Bible that affected the Jewish people outside of rejecting uh, Yeshua when he came, but, but in, in the context of the Torah, we might say, well, the golden calf. But you know, that's not the case. Think about it. After the golden calf, God judged. The people were basically forgiven. God, God said he would travel with the people, and off they go. But it was, it was not the golden calf. It was not trusting God to go into the land. Not trusting God to go into the land is why there was 40 years of wilderness wanderings. Not the golden calf, but it was not trusting God in you know, Numbers chapter 13. Uh, uh, to go into the land. But what I would suggest is that that was not really a surprise. It was a symptom of a greater ill. And the greater ill was not being a consecrated people. And the consequences of not being a consecrated people, a holy people, is not trusting God, not walking in his will, not trusting his word. 
but rather saying, well, we have, this doesn't make sense, and we rationalize the things that we do. I would suggest that this is also true when you come to the New Covenant. And we say, we might ask ourselves, why is it that the uh, people, the uh, Pharisees, for example, uh, didn't recognize Yeshua? Now, I know there's theological reasons and, and political reasons and, you know, things of that nature. But why is, I mean, they believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed, uh, in, they believed in many of the right things the Pharisees did. But what I would suggest is that the, re- the rejection of Yeshua was a symptom of a greater illness. And the illness there was a form of legalism, was putting up a barrier, in a sense, uh, between the people and God, even though their goal was to draw the people into a closer relationship with God, that the uh, uh, not being consecrated to God, but being consecrated to a series of rules, but not consecrated to God, blinded them so that they could not see. Why is it that even prior to that time that the people didn't listen to the prophets? Why is it that when Moses said, choose life, I mean, if you have, if someone says to you, choose life, why, you know, it reminds me of Jack Benny, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, you know, why would you not choose life? Why? Because we get blinded by a lack of consecration, a lack of holiness, uh, a lack of, and, and I'm not talking about legalism, but uh, a, a holiness, a uh, living a life of forgiveness and a confession of sin and, and desiring to walk with God, not simply to a series of rules, but to relate to God himself, see, which is what the Torah is a vehicle for, okay? Uh, and so therefore, you need the organization, but you need the consecration, and so let's take a look a little bit at, uh, at this passage, uh, and then uh, we can uh, make a, a, number of, um, a number of applications. Okay, first of all, what, you, what we see here is that when we read uh, these passages in the Torah, there is an assumption, you could say by Moses, that the original hearers of this knew more than us, okay? So we're not given, for example, a lot of background information, but we read about how they were to conduct themselves. So, for example, you see here in chapter 5, it says um, in verse 6, Speak to the sons of Israel when a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind. That's a pretty interesting phrase in and of itself. That will require a separate uh, study. Okay, the sins, any the sins of mankind. You know who hasn't committed a sin of mankind, uh, right? Okay, uh, uh, acting unfaithfully against the Lord, that person is guilty. Then he shall confess uh, his sins. Let's stop there. Confess. That's a great word uh, in, um, in Hebrew. Uh, it is uh, basically the word, it's a form of the word yada, to know. Okay? But the way it's written as a verb, and in the, the, way, the particular way it's written as a verb, uh, it's something you do. Okay? Not just 
have like cogni- a, a cognitive understanding. And so you acknowledge, okay, you acknowledge. It's like something comes out, you know? Uh, and that's why it's a very interesting word because it's related to other words that we're familiar with, most notably, toda. Who knows what toda means, right? It means thank you, right? Toda rabah, thank you very much, right? Thank. Okay, well, when we thank, we're acknowledging something. We're acknowledging what you have done when we thank, right? Another time it's also used is one of the many words uh, in Hebrew for uh, uh, praise. There's many words in Hebrew for praise. But one of them is yada. We're acknowledging God, acknowledging his greatness. That's praise. Okay? Sometimes it's also used right here for the word confess. We're acknowledging our sin. The true, so not only acknowledge, but acknowledge what is true. Acknowledge great things that you have done for me. That is thanks. Acknowledging who you are. That is praise. And acknowledging what I've really done wrong against God. That is confession. Okay? Uh, it's not admitting. Admitting is, yeah, I did it. Okay? Acknowledging is, yes, I am guilty. That's acknowledging. Okay? Not just, you got me, but yes, I am guilty. Okay? Uh, And so he shall confess his sins, which he has committed, and he shall make restitution. And restitution is another interesting, that comes from the word, the same word as repent, to turn. And again, the way it's written in Hebrew is to return. You're returning something, you're bringing something back, returning something making restitution. Uh, It's related to the word shuv. Very interesting. Okay? In full for his wrong and add to it more. (laughs) Right? One-fifth of it and give it to him whom he has uh, wronged. Okay, so here we read about confession. Well, uh, if we're living a life of confession, uh, that means there is a level of holiness attached to us. You know, when we sin, it doesn't mean that we're lost or, uh, or that we're, um, you know, God hates us now. Or, no, when we sin and we realize it and we feel guilty as believers, that is coming from God. That is God at work in your life, bringing you back to him. You can read in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 when Paul talks about his letter. He says, you know, I really felt bad about writing that 1 Corinthians letter to you because I heard about how bad you felt. But then I didn't feel bad anymore because I realized that it brought you back to God. Okay? And then he says, uh, you know, sorrow leading to repentance brings life. Okay? And And by the way, sorrow or guilt that... Uh, is not of God, brings death, which is like false guilt and things of that nature. But when we really sin, it's like God gives us a spiritual pain so that we're like, it's on our radar, the pain. I need to do something about pain, right? Uh, and, and we confess uh, the sin. Interestingly enough here, the confession is outward. The confession uh, is not just go in my closet and confess. You're confessing to the priest, 
okay? You're confessing to the, to the Levites. You're confessing to the priests. There is a communal aspect to this confession. Now, we would not say that you must only confess a sin to a spiritual leader. Not that there's anything wrong with that, okay? And we read certainly about confessing your sins one to another. We read that in the, in the Brit Kadashah. You read lots of illustrations in the whole Tanakh about people confessing their sins, and we know they confess their sins because it's written about, and because we know they confess it to others. But we also know that we are a priesthood of believers, and we know that there we enter through a new and living way, and we can confess our sins to God. The question is, I wonder, do we really acknowledge the guilt of our sins to God? I hope we do. You know, I hope we do. Usually for us, that's the big loophole. Or if we get off the, oh, I, I only need to confess my sins to God. You know? But the question is, I wonder if we really, really do. Only we know that in our, in our own hearts. But I can tell you that when I've had conver- difficult conversations with people and they have confessed their sins to me, there is a lifting of the burden because there's this transaction that's taken place. And you see, that's why it's a wonderful thing to have godly men and women that you trust, not just any old person, but godly men and women that you trust and spiritual leaders that you trust to be able to go and know you're in a safe place and you can confess a sin, you know? That leads to holiness. That leads to cleansing and, and, uh, and uh, a freedom of the spirit of God to work in, in your life. Okay, then at the end of chapter 5, we have this passage about this husband and wife, okay? All I'll say uh, about this uh, is that what's amazing is that there is a process in the community for figuring out the truthfulness of sin. Now, I don't know anyone that has a great explanation of the woman drinking the potion and how that's supposed to work. But what I do know is, is that when you, read the whole, when you read the whole passage, verse by verse, you see that God is involved and it is God who either absolves her and it is God who judges her. The rest of it is a ritual, an ancient form of ritual that I will say I would never administer, okay? Uh, Because I think some things in the Torah are indeed time-bound, but the principle remains true. Uh, But the fact is, is that it is God who is absolving her or judging her. But it takes place in the community. See, that's very important to recognize, that that the, the community, the point is, is that there is uh, a, a level of holiness and that sin is dealt with. That's the point of the, um, the point of the passage. Now, what's also very interesting here is if you go to chapter six, at the very beginning of chapter six, you know, you could come to the conclusion after reading the end of chapter five about this situation is that, boy, I'd hate to be a woman in ancient Israel. Uh, 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 because of, the, of this that takes place. But I will say, even though this text, this text doesn't say it, that a man who commits adultery, uh, it does not, uh, there is no loophole for a man who commits adultery. This passage is about a particular situation. It's very situational. 
you know, as is many of the laws in the Torah. They don't cover every single aspect uh, of life. But if you look at the beginning of chapter 6, notice what it says, something very interesting. Uh, Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when a man or woman makes a special vow. That is very, that's fascinating. It doesn't say when a man makes a vow, but when a man or woman makes a vow. This is a Nazarite vow. So men make Nazarite vows, women make Nazarite vows. It's not only men who are called to be holy and, and have this uh, rule or responsibility or opportunity of consecration and separation, but men and women. And it makes me think that uh, it comes right after this passage about this adulterous woman law to show that, no, it's not that women uh, 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 do not have the opportunity uh, to be holy and consecrated to, uh, uh, to God. And so I think that's rather interesting. By the way, there's something else very interesting about this passage. Uh, in verse 3, this, this comes under the form of anecdote. He shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar. Like apple cider vinegar? I guess. Whether made from wine or strong drink, neither shall he drink any grape juice nor eat fresh or dried grapes. This is the only passage in the Hebrew Bible that uses the phrase, and it's very literally translated, grape juice. Nowhere else in the Bible do you read the word grape juice. Okay? I think it's important. You know why it's important? Because it tells you that there was a difference between grape juice and fermented wine. And when the Bible says wine, it means fermented wine. Now, why does it say it every, you know, grape juice, wine? Because eating, eating drinking fruit, drinking the, the, as it says in the King James Version, the liquor of the grape. <laughs> in any way, shape, or form, that was the norm in ancient Israel. If you go to Israel today, what do we say on a tour? Drink bottled water, right? You drink bottled water. When you go almost anywhere around the world, drink bottled water, right? They would drink grapes. They drank grapes, all right? So what it's saying is, this is, an, this is a very uh, extreme form of separation. Wow, no fruit of grapes. That was like a big deal. Whether it would be wine, fermented wine, or not fermented wine. Okay, little anecdote there, all right? Uh, But it speaks about holiness and, for a season, a particular kind of holiness, this Nazarite vow. See, one of the things the text doesn't say is, well, when would you take a Nazarite vow? Evidently, they knew that. We don't don't know that. It doesn't tell us when or why, but just uh, this form of a vow. And I would suggest in the book of Judges, The reasons that the Manoah passage is used is because God opened up the womb of Manoah's wife. And and she had to take a form of a Nazarite vow. And the child, Samson, lived his whole life uh, under a Nazarite vow. And so there's a relationship uh, here to chapters 5 and 6. Okay? Very good. So the rest of this is about the Nazarite vow. But then you come 
to the end of chapter 6, and lo and behold, you have the Aaronic benediction. And I think that it's here because not only are, are people who take a Nazarite vow holy before the Lord, but in a sense, the whole congregation of Israel is called to be holy before the Lord. Every single man, woman, and child. And so therefore, as they were preparing to go on the journey, God tells Moses to pray over them, that they would be protected, uh, that God would uh, uh, show them uh, unmerited favor, uh, and that there would be peace under the rubric of a blessing, make your face shine and lift up your countenance, uh, meaning protection uh, and, uh, and favor uh, and, uh, and peace, you see. And so the entire nation was to be holy. And then you have <clears throat> the role of priests in bringing, bringing offerings, uh, which served as a role model because chapter 7 is really very interesting because you have everybody bringing the same offerings. And it's like repeats and it repeats and it repeats and, it's, and it repeats maybe to show us, you see, the consecration of the priesthood. This is how everybody is supposed to be consecrated to God. So what do we learn about this, what's, what uh, binds all of these passages together? We learn uh, from this Torah portion that leaders are called to uh, judge sin in the midst. That's what this passage is about. It's on one hand, like I said, it's about the role of the priests in how they administer uh, holiness in the community. And it's interesting that uh, in the book of Numbers, you have uh, moral sins and ethical sins that get judged. In a later portion, you have the sin of Korach. That we could call an ethical sin. In order for, we, we might say, well, what, what did he do so wrong? He was undermining the leadership. He questioned Moses' credentials. He created a faction. You read all kinds of things, you know, in the New Covenant about all those kinds of sins. But something quite clear in the book of Numbers is God did away with them. Whoa, right into the ground. You know, uh, it wasn't because uh, dissenting voices cannot be heard. No, it was because this was ethical sin in the heart of Korach. He might have even had good intentions like, I know a better way to get to the land. You know, wrongly, you know, uh, of course. But uh, we see that uh, these are the kinds of sins that uh, must be judged. The, this is a lack of consecration. This is a lack of holiness. And then, of course, you have these kinds of sins, sins of adultery, uh, and any sin under the sun, any, si any of the sins, uh, uh, sins of mankind need to be confessed. Otherwise, we're holding back the community. See, that's why you have, like, for example, in, um, uh, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, Paul chastises the community at Corinth who thought they were uh, God's gift uh, to this world. It says, you're not judging the sin that's among you. And that's why Paul tells Timothy, you know, uh, don't uh, let a factious man have his way. Ethical sins? Moral sins uh, need to be uh, dealt with in the community of believers. 
Otherwise, it holds, uh, it holds the community, sin holds us back from fulfilling the calling of God uh, in our uh, lives. Now, on the positive side, confessing sins is a really good thing. You know, some, like I said, sometimes it means confessing to a spiritual leader, to a trusted uh, godly person, not necessarily a friend, but a trusted godly person, uh, uh, someone whom you know will use great wisdom uh, with this information that they, have, that they now have, you see. Uh, or confessing it directly to God, trusting that that's indeed what we do. Confession is a good thing. It's a very cleansing truth in our lives. And it's important that we receive confession, meaning that when a person sins, we don't simply, so to speak, hold it against them, right? But when they confess, we receive them just like God receives them. And we forgive just like God forgives. And we do not let it get in the way of our fellowship, just like God does not let it get in the way of our fellowship. And so on both ends, we need to be confessors and receivers. That brings holiness. That brings uh, a consecration uh, uh, to, uh, our, uh, to our lives. Okay? Uh, let's see. And this is the way we bear one another's, this is the way we bear one another's uh, uh, burdens. And so uh, we also want to be a people who takes seasons of, uh, of uh, uh, consecration, like, for example, a Nazarite vow. Uh, I think it's fine if you wanted to say, I want to do a Nazarite vow. Like, you know, not, uh, not uh, you know, do anything to your hair for a season of time or not drink grape juice or wine. I think that's fine and dandy. As long as, you know, you're really doing this for, for God and not some uh, 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 religious one-upsmanship or something like that. You know, you know what I mean? So we can be guilty of that. Uh, but that there's a season where I need to be separated uh, unto God. You know, and maybe for you, uh, it is a vow that uh, you take the principle of this and that you're, you're simply separated unto God, whether it means fasting or refraining from something or particular or this very thing. That is a good thing. It is a good thing to have a season of a, a particular season of a, of a particular kind of consecration for particular uh, reasons, a particular uh, calling on God, or perhaps you just know that God has spoken to you about it. Maybe you have to make a huge decision coming up, or, or, or perhaps you would just have been too busy, and it's time to take a little respite, you know, and uh, to recharge those uh, uh, spiritual, uh, those spiritual uh, uh, batteries. Okay. Well, finally, I think when you look at this whole passage, isn't it interesting that you have a description of sinfulness being dealt with, uh, an illustration of confession of sin, and then an illustration of, of extreme consecration? I think it just shows you that in a community, at the same time, you can have all of this going on. At the same time, you can have people who, are, who have sinned and are being, uh, um, where sin is being dealt with. You can have people who, who sin and, and then are convicted and, and confess it. And at the very same time, you can have people who are really uh, uh, separating themselves for, of, of a time of, of, of holiness. It's like a mixed bag is what this passage, it, you know, dealing with all kinds of people. 
And that's what we are. We're all kinds of people. We, you know, and, and probably uh, as I look around the room, there are some who are dealing with some, you know, ethical or moral sin in, in your life. Or, or perhaps right now you are just separated unto God and having a wonderful time of, of fellowship with him or, or you're dealing with some kind of issue in your life. It's a mixed bag. And so we see here, where whatever state we are in, there is a way to be holy. Whatever state we may be in, there is a way. And Yeshua is indeed the way. The way, the truth, and the life. In him there is forgiveness of sin. In him there is acceptance. In him there is judgment and chastisement. In him there is a new level of holiness via the Ruach HaKodesh who indwells us. You know, uh, as a, a spiritual leader, uh, it's our response, my responsibility, our responsibility to make sure that administratively the trellis is strong so that the vine can grow well. And so the concern is everywhere. The concern is, is that we are operating in a good way in, in a way that testifies to godliness. The way we use our funds, the way our elders relate to each other and our shamashim and decisions we make and programs and different things we, we do, all for the purpose of making sure and helping every single one of us to work through wherever we're at. Whether that be dealing with a struggle a, in our lives, a sin, a situation, or just having Bible study and wonderful time of fellowship and helping each other grow. If we are going to move forward in the calling that God has given to us, we need to recognize, especially from this week's Torah portion, the uh, absolute necessity of consecration, of holiness, of walking with God, not in some legalistic fashion, but in a way where we are functioning in community dealing with the issues of our lives and moving forward with God and being a testimony to our community. You know, this trip was only supposed to take a, a, really a very short period of time to get to Eretz Yisrael. But instead, it took another 38 years. And so we need to ask ourselves, you know, God can do amazing things with a, with a body of Messiah that shows up and that is consecrated unto him. Far beyond what we think. Far beyond uh, uh, our own uh, vision. God's vision is great. May we be people who move that forward. May, may we not miss out on God's best. May we be people who really do live that abundant life that comes via holiness consecration, yieldedness to one another, yieldedness to the leadership, uh, and uh, uh, yieldedness to God and the Ruach HaKodesh who dwells within us.